up to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, as we uh, are in week two of a series that I've titled uh, Relationships, we're looking at the, uh, a certain section of text in John's gospel, specifically John chapter 13 through chapter 17. That is called the Upper Room Discourse. It is the last conversation that Jesus has with the disciples together as a group. And the things that he speaks with them about in these chapters are very important because this, again, is the last chance he has to share with them what he wants them to know before he goes to the cross. Now, as I said last week, you could look at these chapters in a, in a variety of ways and from different angles, but as I began to, to read over them, uh, anticipating this series uh, many months ago, I began to see a theme emerge in that Jesus would oftentimes talk about the relationships that his followers are to have with different aspects of life. So last week we saw from John chapter 15, about the relationship Jesus told us we can have with himself and with God. And this morning, I want us to look now at your relationship with one another. That is, what does Jesus expect in our relationship with each other as followers of Jesus Christ? You see, God himself exists in relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, one Trinity, he revealed in three distinct persons. He created us in his image, which means then that we are, we are wired for relationships. However, I just, I'm going to do a poll question, and uh, I'll, I'm going to trust that the response I get in here is the response we're going to get online as well. Any of you ever had a conflict in a relationship? Okay, the, those of you who don't have your hands up, if you're ever asked if you've lied, the answer is yes, because you just did. Uh, we as, as humans, as sinful people, every relationship we have, there's going to come a time when there is some tension, there is some difficulty, there is some headache that comes through, and oftentimes he's called the husband, right? Uh, that, that there is uh, so, something that comes up in relationships. Think back to the first relationship between humans, Adam and Eve. It started off perfect, but it quickly became ruined by sin. Think about the, the first siblings, Cain and Abel. Remember how that relationship ended? Murder, yeah, death. I know many of you have thought about your siblings maybe in the same way, but this, uh, that relationship ended in death. And, and you trace any and every relationship, whether it's in the Bible or in history, you will see that relationships are ruined because of sin. Wars have been waged between nations because the relationships between the people of those nations soured. Nations have fallen apart within themselves because of sin-wrecked relationships. Homes have been decimated because of the demise of the relationships within them. My point is this. The natural posture of our relationship with one another, <coughs> it is 
broken. It is a challenge to live biblically and to live righteously with one another. See, this is such an important relationship. Such an important relationship that Jesus, not just does he mention it once in John 13 through 17, several times Jesus talks about the relationship his followers are to have with one another. Now, this is important. This is not the relationship we're to have with the world. We're going to look at that relationship later. This is the relationship that people who are part of the family of God that we are to have with one another. See, for example, in John chapter 15 and verse 12, Jesus said this, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Notice it's not his suggestion that we love one another. It's not his preference that we love one another. It is a command. It's not just a goal. It's a command. So what that means is if we don't live rightly in this relationship, since God's commanded it, if we don't do it, it is sin. Or listen to what he said in John chapter 17 and verse 21, Jesus is praying in this uh, time when he's in the upper room with his disciples. And he prays for himself, he prays for them, and he prays for us. And when he prays for us, he prays that they, us, that we may be all be one, just as you, Father, in me and I in him, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He repeats this prayer in verse 23 of the same chapter, the relationship we are to have with one another this relationship of unity, not uniformity. There's a difference. It's a relationship of, of unity. Uniformity is that everybody believes the same thing, they act the same way, they eat the I mean, they're, they're, they are um, clones of each other. That's not the goal. The goal is unity, having that the fact of the matter being that we follow the same Jesus with the same goal, with the same purpose of seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We have what we have in common in our relationship with Jesus is greater than anything that makes us different. That is to say, Christ is greater than our differences. Maybe you have a different philosophy about some matter in life. Maybe you, you vote differently than other people. Maybe you think differently than other people. If you have a relationship with Jesus, what you and I have in common, Christ is greater than any differences we might have. This does not invalidate our differences, but it reminds us that those differences are not greater than Christ. You see, I think that's in my own biological family. I mean, not everybody can think and act as perfectly as I do, right? <laughs> and so I got people in my biological family and in my close family that they don't agree with me politically. They don't agree with me philosophically, but they're still family. And I still sit down and eat their food. <laughs> and I still enjoy their fellowship. 
because what we have as a biological family, what we have, the fact that we, we come from the same family, that's greater than the little things that make us different. different. And if that is true in the physical aspect, think of how much stronger that is spiritually when God is involved. Listen, this is why this is so important. Jesus, when he said that prayer in John 17, he said, I want you guys to be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus, catch this, Jesus essentially gave the world permission to judge the validity of his ministry based on the unity of his people. I'm going to repeat that. Jesus gave the world permission to judge the validity of his ministry based on the unity of his people. How dare I not desire that unity? How dare me not seek that unity when Jesus has put so much upon it? But I want you to see the main text we're going to look at this morning. I know, I don't even have to preach it yet. Look at John chapter 13 and verse 34 and 35. Jesus speaking, and he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. That's an interesting phrase. A new commandment, when we kind of know that back in the book of Leviticus, which is as old as Israel itself, Leviticus 19, 18 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what does Jesus mean? This commandment, the commandment itself was not new. What was new, the reason you said this is a new commandment, what was new was the standard they were to use to measure their love for one another. The standard was, in Jesus' words, as I have loved you. Catch this, the disciples were to love each other in the same manner and to the same extent that Jesus had loved them. And that standard is our standard as well. We're going to go from preaching to meddling for just a second. Your standard in loving another believer, whether they are Republican or Democrat or black or white, whether they have resources or not, whether they look like you or not, whether they think like you or not, your standard to love other people who follow Jesus is to love them the way Jesus has loved you. And if that's not your love, you're in sin. Now that's a tough truth to deal with because I'll be honest with you this morning. I don't mind loving people I like. It's the people that sometimes can be thorns in our flesh and the people whose flesh I'm a thorn in that can become difficult to love as Jesus tells us to love them. Well, look, 
if this is the standard, and, and I, I cannot think of a time when getting this relationship right is as needed among the people of God in the church and in this nation and in this world than it is today. So if the goal for our relationship is to love one another as Jesus has loved us, the question becomes, how did Jesus love us? How did Jesus love the disciples? Let me give you briefly three statements, three ways in which Jesus loved his disciples that are now binding upon us as we love one another. First is this, Jesus showed his love for others by serving them. He showed his love for others by serving them. This this upper room discourse, as I've told you, John 13 through 17, it opens up with John 13. And the scene in John 13 is that of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Now, that was something that was completely mind-blowing for many different reasons, one of which is that forever and a day and still existing today, The idea is that if you have power, you use it to your advantage, not the advantages of others. See, as far as the the universal approach to to power is to use that power to elevate yourself, self-promotion, self-benefit, not for serving others, not for washing the feet of someone else. If you're smart, you're supposed to leverage your intelligence to make some money. If you have a little bit of money, you're supposed to leverage that that, uh, income to increase your standard of living. If you have a position of, of power, then you're supposed to use that power to increase your control in such a way that it benefits you. But here is Jesus at the end of his life washing the feet of his disciples. He's not using his power to protect himself from danger, but to pour himself out for others. In fact, Jesus spent his entire life leveraging his power to benefit others, not himself. That is our standard. Are you serving others? Are you leveraging your life for others? Are you using your power to climb a ladder of temporary success? Or are you using that power to stoop down and to serve others? You see, to be a follower of Jesus means that your life is characterized by service, not just in what you say, but in what you do. In fact, what you say, that's important, but you need to back up what you say with what you do. In fact, the the gentleman, the man, the apostle who wrote John's gospel wrote another letter, 1 John, and he says this in 1 John chapter 3, but if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet he closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And look, this applies to everyone. How many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve. Okay. In that group of disciples of 12, how many feet were there? 24. (laughs) 24. Because 12 times 2 is 24. How many feet did Jesus wash? 
24. Had I been Jesus, there'd have been about two feet I washed. That'd been it. And yet Jesus washes the feet of one who would betray him, Judas. He washed the feet of one who would deny him, Peter. He washed the feet of one who would doubt him, Thomas. He washed the feet of 11 disciples who would abandon him because the only one at the cross was John. Knowing that these people would not be there to serve him, he still served them. How's your serve? If you're not serving others, you don't have this relationship right. Because Jesus showed his love to others by serving them. Here's the second thing Jesus did to show his love. He showed his love for others by sharing his life with them. This is how we love one another. We serve one another and we share life with one another. Jesus lived among his disciples. He came into the world. He lived among sinners. He shared his life with them. He didn't stand in heaven and shout his love toward them. He incarnated himself among them and showed his love for them. As the disciples in Jesus, as they're walking toward John chapter 13, as they're making their way to Jerusalem, as they're getting ready to go to this upper room, he makes a pit stop to a certain place in Bethany where one of his friends, Lazarus, had died. And in John chapter 11, he comes to the tomb of Lazarus and he sees the two sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, and he sees them weeping. And what does Jesus do in response to that? Shortest verse in the Bible, two words, John eleven thirty-five. 35. Jesus what? Wept. Why? Why did he? He knew that he was about to give Lazarus life again. And man, I've listened to some uh, theological, I don't know what I call them, scholars or not, but I've listened to some dudes discuss at length why did Jesus, why did he weep? Was it some, let's, I, I'm, I'm just a simple country bunking who reads the Bible and believes what it says. I think Jesus wept because his heart was broken. I think he wept because he saw Martha and Mary, and their pain was his pain. You see, Jesus shares life with us. He feels our pain and our sorrows. He makes them his very own. He made himself one with us. He feels what we feel. Yes, God sits high above the heavens and holds the world in his hand, but he's also a God who came so close to us that he weeps with us in our pain. He shares life with us. Again, let's use the standard of Jesus' as love as our own. Are you sharing life with other people? Are you close enough to someone that you will walk through the valley with them? Because the way we love one another is by serving them and by sharing life with them. Number three. Jesus showed his love for others by removing their separation from God for them. 
they were unable to do that themselves. It all hinges on Jesus. You see, oftentimes, the strongest relationships we have are with people who are like us. Uh, they, 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 sociologists, uh, they, they call that the, the homogeneous principle. You hang around people who are most like you. Often we have the most meaningful relationships with people who are most similar to us. Think about this. Never has there been such a big, stark difference between people than the difference between Jesus and us. He is the creator of the atom and the molecule. I can't get the clock in my car to synchronize with the clock on my phone or watch. <laughs> That's how big a difference it is between us. He creates that a molecule. I can't get my clock set right. And yet despite this difference, Jesus came to us. He did not come to us because he was lonely. He did not need to be a part of our circle. Jesus left his circle in relationship with the Father and Spirit, the Trinity, and he came into our circle for the express purpose of including us in his. Let's go back to that standard of love. Jesus has done all that is required to remove the separation between man and God. Are you pointing people in that direction? Are you using your life to show someone who's separated from God how they can have a relationship with God? Are you willing to make it your objective in your life to make Jesus known to those who are apart from him? I can think of no better way to show love than to introduce someone to a Savior who can forgive their sins, who can give them abundant life on heaven, and who can give them eternal life with him. According to Jesus... The way the world will know that we are his disciples is if we have love for one another. When the world sees the people of God loving each other, they get a glimpse of God because God is love. The beauty of this place, of this building, it's not in the architecture. The beauty of this place is in the body of Christ. The people who are gathered that compose this body of believers. I want you to know this morning that it's not our performance on this platform that's going to convince the world that we follow Jesus. Our programs they're not what the world will find compelling. Rather, it's our love for one another. The Bible does not recognize a walk with God that is separated from the people of God. I'll repeat that. I'm wrapping up. Look at the Bible. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it recognize that a walk with God is possible if it's separated from the people of God. We must love one another. Here's my challenge to you and my conclusion. This is going to be the invitation, me just saying a couple more words. I want you to think about the people in your life. The people in your life who also follow Jesus. They, like you, belong to the family of God. And as you think about those people in your life, I want to ask you, and I don't, don't answer out loud, don't raise your hand, don't write it down or anything else. I, I just I, I want to ask you, is there someone in that network of relationships that you're not loving as Jesus has loved you? Is there someone in that circle of relationships that you are making intentional efforts to not serve? Is there someone in that network of relationships that you're not sharing life with them? If there are people, and I'm telling you, a relationship involves two sinners, and that means there's work to do. I think your challenge as a follower of Jesus Christ today is to think about someone that you are not loving as Jesus has loved you and start loving them this weekend. That might mean you, you have to apologize to them. That might mean that you have to take up the towel and say, you know what, I know that I have not been a good brother or sister in Christ in your life, but I'm going to try to serve you better. I'm going to try to love you like Jesus has loved me. That is what will change this world. Not reform in D.C., not changes in education system. All those things are important. What's going to change the world is the people of God acting like the people of God. And how do we think we're going to reach the world if we can't love one another? That is my conviction. That is my challenge to myself and to you. But maybe you're here this morning and you've never experienced that love of God. Let me tell you, there is nothing like knowing that you belong to God and that He's your Savior. There's nothing as peaceful as knowing that God is the Savior and Lord of my life. For there was a day many years ago when I came to the realization that God loved me, but also came to the realization that my sin separated me from that love that God had for me. And that life he wanted to give me, I couldn't have that life because sin was in the way, not his sin, but my own. But then I read in the Gospels about how God loved the world so much that he sent his only son to take care of that problem. That sin that was between me and God, his son came and I can't live a sinless life 
but his son did for me. And his son, this Jesus, lived a life I couldn't live and died a death I should have died. So that now, if I will confess my sins to him and give my sinful life to him, and in my heart turn and change direction from seeking to make myself the Lord of my life and seek him as the Lord of my life. But the Bible tells me that he'll save me and give me a brand new life. If you don't have that life, if you've never experienced that love, oh, I encourage you today before you leave here to take that yellow card out of that pew in front of you to go online to fbcmilton.org slash next steps and let us know that you need to take that step and we'll follow up with you before this day is done, if that's the step you need to take to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. In just a second, we're going to be dismissed in prayer. And after we're dismissed, we will go out into this world that's going to have a lot of chatter this week. It's going to have a, a lot of change that's coming. But one thing that's not is that Jesus is still on his throne and always will be. And we have a calling that does not change to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Remember next year.